Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Joshua Piker, a professor of history at the College of William and Mary. His teaching and research centers on the intersection of early American and Native American history. Piker is the author of two monographs, Akfuski, a, Greek, a Creek Indian Town in Colonial America, and The Four Deaths of Acorn Whistler, Telling Stories in Colonial America. Piker is the editor of William and Mary Quarterly, a journal of early American history and culture. He gave a talk titled, So You Want to Publish a History Journal, on November 27, 2017, as a guest of UO's Department of History. Thanks, Josh, for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You have a particular interest in the relationship between the Creek Indians and British colonists in South Carolina and Georgia in the early 18th century. What led to your interest in that specific period and those populations? Oh, that's a great question. I, I'm interested in finding ways to talk about the interconnections between Native and non-Native peoples, right? And in Georgia and South Carolina, what's now Georgia and South Carolina, uh, the Creeks were every bit as powerful as the British colonists, and so in, in the 18th century, which is the period I work on. And so it was possible for me to sort of insert myself into that area, into that time, uh, and begin to see how Creeks and non-Creeks, Creeks and Anglos in this case, dealt with each other. Um, and what I want to show in my work is that it's impossible to write early American history without Native people in it. Uh, and this was a, Georgia and South Carolina uh, was a place in the 18th century where everyone knew the Creeks held the balance of power. And so it was very easy for me to get at the relationships I wanted to talk about by looking at that place. It hasn't always been the case that scholars of early American history thought that uh, Native American history was part of that history. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when I came into the field in the early 1990s, uh, you had to make a, a strong argument that if you did Native history, you were also doing early American history. Um, I am the first editor, you, I mentioned I edit the William Mary Quarterly, I'm mm -hmm. the first editor of that journal to specialize in Native history. Uh, I'm the first editor of that journal whose first book wasn't reviewed in that journal. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so the field has changed um, rather dramatically in the last generation. And, and it's not just indigenous history, the field has expanded in all, of early American history has expanded in all sorts of directions. We now move into the Atlantic, we move deep into the continent. Mm -hmm. uh, I've just published an article that's clearly early American history on the Puritans' engagement with India. Hmm. So we're, hmm. we're becoming more global, but part of that, a big part of that, uh, maybe one of the earliest moves in that direction was into Indian country. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been enormously intellectually fruitful mm -hmm. for the field. So tell us a little bit about these relations between the Creeks and the British during the period you study. What kind of relations did they have? So what I'm interested in, especially in the, the Four Deaths of Aquin Whistler book, what mm -hmm. I'm interested in is stories that cross cultural and political frontiers. And, and I, I think that in, say, 1750 in Georgia and South Carolina, um, you very rarely, as an Anglo colonist, went a day without seeing or thinking about or talking about a native person, right? And I think the same is true in Creek country, which would, in, in the period that I'm writing about, is sort of the border of what's now Georgia and Alabama. Um, those Creek people dealt intimately with, with uh, European peoples, the, the French in Louisiana, the Spanish in Florida, the British on the East Coast. Uh, and all of these people were deeply engaged with each other. And so the stories that 
I'm tracing in this book are stories that cross cultural and political frontiers. They're stories that start in Okfuskie, a town that I've written about, and in Coweta, another Creek town, move to Charleston and Savannah, move to London, and then London stories come back and wind up in Okfuskie. And I want to be able to show these intimate relationships, these, the ways in which people are talking and thinking um, about and with each other. Um, I want to be able to show a world that in which it's, it's almost impossible to distinguish, sort of to draw a line between Indian country and the European colonies, or uh, an Indian town and a European village. I want to show a world in which these people are intimately involved in each other's lives. Okay, so okay. let's talk about that first book, the yeah. Okfuski book. Um, tell us first what, sort of what's the, what's the sort of overall argument of the book, okay. and then tell us um, what What's the method that you use to, to get at this kind yeah, of relationship? Okay. So that's a great question. The argument of that book is that we tend to think of native peoples as tribal peoples, mm -hmm. right? You know, there are the Creeks and there are the Cherokees and the Chickasaws in the Southeast and so on. Um, and that for people in the Southeast in the 18th century, for native people, the key um, social unit wasn't the tribe or the nation. It was the village and the clan. It was local stuff, personal stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to write a book that would sort of stand in an Indian town square and look out from there, okay? And, and I, I, I argue in the book that that helps us re-see how Native peoples approach the world around them, right? They're not just Creeks, they're Okfuskies and Catawbas and on and on and on. Um, the method is the hard thing, mm -hmm. right? Because there is no Okfusky archive. Correct. Um, and the Okfusky, the, is, it was a, a village on the Tallapoosa River is underwater now, so you can't do archaeology there. It's under a TVA dam. And so what I wound up doing was showing up in every southeastern British archive mm -hmm. that I could find and say, give me any sources you have on creeks, right? Just creeks. I'm not going to ask for Okfuskies because I know that you don't think you have Okfuskies. And I will start piecing together references to people I know are Okfusky, so looking for a particular headman, headman, you know, specific leaders, uh, the white lieutenant, handsome fellow, the redcoat king. I will start looking for British traders and British diplomats who move to that town, and I will follow those people. Uh, and by doing that, you can start piecing together a sense of where the Okfuskies were going and what they thought was important. You can essentially get observed behavior. Um, and you can start from that process of observing their patterns of behavior, where they were hunting, where they were making war, who they were trading with, what they were buying. You can get a sense of how their community was evolving over time. And in, in the book, I sort of move from, I move out from the edges of the town inward. In a sense, I start, the book starts with a discussion of the Okfuskies' relationship with the British. Mm -hmm. So an uh, international relationship, if you will. It moves from there into the Okfuskies' dealings with British traders, with capitalism. It moves from there to Okfuskies' dealings with British livestock and agricultural systems. And it moves from there to Okfuskies' dealing with Okfuskies. Mm -hmm. Relationships between men and women, old and young. That last chapter mm -hmm. is the hardest chapter, sure. right? And that's the one that I'm least satisfied with because it was easier to move in to this point. And so I spent, I spent 10 years researching this town and I don't know the name of one Okfusky woman. Hmm right, in the 18th century. And this is a society in which women are every bit as powerful as men. I, know, I can see them. I can see their, rea their relationships with British men. I can see their relationships with, with Okfusky men. Mm -hmm. But I can't actually get at the women. So there's a limit to how far you can go using archival sources. And if I was doing that book again, mm. 
Yeah. That's the point where I'd start engaging with oral histories, with oral narratives, uh, and I, I wasn't trained to do that. I wasn't thinking about doing that. And I realized right at the end of the project that there was a gap there. And so that's something else that someone else can do. Is there a significant Creek population today? There is, there's still an Oak Fusky. So the, um, the Creeks were moved to Oklahoma uh, by Andrew Jackson in the 1830s. The Oak Fuskies moved their, their sacred fire from Oak Fusky to Oak Fusky. Uh, so I taught at the University of Oklahoma for 15 years. There's an Oak Fusky tribal town in hmm. um, northeastern Oklahoma near Tulsa. Uh, and there are, you know, the, the, the Muscogee Creek Nation is still a very big deal in Oklahoma. Um, and so you, you, you actually can do oral histories with these folks. I, I've given talks where people from Oak Fusky have showed up at the talk and talked to me about their stories and my stories and what we learned from each other. Hmm. But I never did anything formal with that. And that's because I, you know, I went to graduate school in upstate New York. Right. Um, this, was, this wasn't, you know, talking about how the field has evolved. This wasn't the way we thought of the field back then. And it's a major gap in the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if I was to do it again. So yeah. your second book, and you, you mentioned it in passing, examines the death of an Upper Creek man named Acorn Whistler. The book is titled The Four Deaths of Acorn Whistler. So first, yeah. gloss that title. What do you mean four deaths? So Acorn Whistler, like we, we all get to die one death, right? Um, Acorn Whistler was executed for a murder he didn't commit, right? He was an Upper Creek headman. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was essentially thrown under the bus by a, both a British governor and by perhaps the most powerful Creek headman of the, the 1752, of the 1750s. Um, everyone involved knew he wasn't guilty. Uh, and everyone involved had to find a way to explain how they could live with this. And so the four deaths are four stories told about Acorn Whistler. Mm -hmm. There's a story told by the British governor there's a story told by the Creek headman who is responsible for, you know, for choosing him, essentially. There's a story told by a Corn Whistler's family and community. And there's a story told by the, I, I call them colonists, but they are essentially the, the Creek, the Anglo Creek woman and her British husband, who were the go-betweens that helped all of this work. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they were the people who moved from village to village, from town to town. It, it made the situation possible in the 1750s. And so it's four different stories about why he had to die and why he was guilty. Um, I, I'd sometimes describe the book as sort of Rashomon meets mm -hmm. Last of the Mohicans with a little bit of Who Framed Roger <laughs> Rabbit. Um, because no one, again, again no, one, no one thought he was, um, he was guilty. Um, but they had to find a way to convince each other that they could accept this. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the stories allow us, again, to see this intimately intertwined world, right? They have to essentially lie with each other, right? It's easy to lie to each other, but how do you lie with each other, right? If you don't agree on things, you're competing with things. You and I are enemies or, you know, tense allies. We have to tell the same lie, right? That's hard, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I'm tracing in the book. So I know you've written provocatively about the neglected implications of uh, cross-cultural untruths, or as you're calling them mm. now, lies. So tell us about those implications. I mean, typically a historian is looking for the truth, mm -hmm. but you're interested in things that are you come to know are not true. Right. The fact that they are not true is no less historically makes them no less historically significant, right? I, I would argue. I mean, I'm, I'm not. To, I'm not saying that we should stop looking for truths. Uh -huh. I, I'm simply saying that sometimes we can look for untruths to see higher truths, right? Mm -hmm. in, in this case, so you're, you're, you're just reading an article that I wrote called Lying Together. Mm -hmm. um, and nice pun, too. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my idea. Actually, I was very happy to take that from a friend. Um, in this case, what I wanted to get at, right, was how do people who 
should be at daggers drawn, right? It should be at their throats, come to agree to tell the same lie, right? We're used to Indians lying to Europeans, we're used to Europeans lying to Indians. That's a standard trope in our histories, right? Mm -hmm. But these are people who are lying about the same thing, lying together, and are, and are mutually dependent upon each other not to expose the lie. Mm -hmm. um, and these are people who should be the most powerful people in their region in this decade, right? This is a British governor of the richest colony on mainland North, Carol North, North, North America. This is the leader of the most powerful native nation in the Southeast, right? And they're lying together, and they're relying on these other peoples from other cultures and other political systems to maintain the lie. Well, what does that tell us about British power? What does it tell us about indigenous power, right? And what does it tell us about how power is maintained power is undermined, power is advanced, right? So the, the, those, in the end, I'm, I didn't want to become the historian of lies. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think there's a future there, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a future in looking at power, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's in the end what I was looking at. The lies get us to the nature of indigenous imperial power in the Southeast in the, in the, in the two decades before the American Revolution. So my understanding is that that's, this book really makes a contribution to that story. That is to say that you, you make an argument that we should think differently about power in this particular moment and in this particular place than we had previously thought about it. So let me ask the question this way. Um, why did they agree to lie together? Why did they, all these yeah. four different uh, peoples, groups of people, agree to the same lie which they all knew to be untrue? Right, because in the end, none of them had the choice not to, right? The, so in, in the end, what I want to say about power is that there's an argument in the field of early American history, you know, empires are powerful, indigenous people are powerful, back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. What I want to say in the end is that we've overestimated the power of all involved. And if we want to understand where sort of the American nation comes from, we need to rec recognize that it comes out of a deep generations long period of profound insecurity and instability, right? That we think of winners write histories, right? But again and again and again, we actually have people who are, who, who are being forced to tell lies, right? Who are being forced to invent stories, who are being forced to take positions or do things that they don't want to do, writing stories, telling lies to cover those positions, right? And so these are losers who are trying to look like winners, writing stories, creating histories, making nations, right? I think that helps us see differently the insecurities in successes and failures of nation building, both European American nation building and indigenous nation building, mm -hmm. right? And so in the end, what I want to get at is the, the power that resides in these stories to create winners out of losers and nations out of fractured peoples. Mm -hmm. So that's the goal. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you a large question. Um, I'm the director of a humanities center. Uh, I'm an English professor. I get asked the question, you know, why does what you do matter? So my question to you is, why does it matter for current Americans to learn about early American history? Why is that something that we n should know, that we should be informed about? Okay, part, part, it's a great question, right? And I, I'm actually more curious to hear your answer than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of it goes to the, the um, the process of learning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think that early American history is the most important thing in the world, but I do think that the the learning to think critically about how social processes develop and change over time 
uh, learning how to investigate those processes, learning how to process the information you need to make decisions about those processes is something that we can absolutely learn in early American history. Now more specific, and, and, and in other historical um, investigations. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, in, you know, my, my wife is a professor of literature. I watch her do very similar things in, in her own scholarship in the 19th and 20th century. In terms of early American history more generally though, one of the things I love about doing early American history, um, and I love bringing this into my classrooms, is let, let me take the things that you, we assume are sort of given, right? Um, the American nation, race, right? Gender relations, relations between, uh, you know, wh whether someone is, is, we would view them as homosexual or not, right? These things that are sort of, in our world, are, are, are just assumed, right? And let me show you a world where none of these things were assumed, right? And then let's see how we got from there to here, right? That this is, I think, critical for understanding both the sort of the fluidity of, of our own current situation, right, uh, and the possibilities of change that we we ourselves have, right? If 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 black and white people were not always black and white people, mm -hmm. right, then our current situation with black and white people or indigenous, non-indigenous people, right? All of these things are in our power to change, right? This is part of our gift. Um, and we can watch people again and again and again screw things up, mm -hmm. right? Make it worse uh, by our lights, right? Uh, and so there's a certain power that we can bring by looking at the past and also a certain humility. We're not better than they are. We're just differently positioned. And you know, one of the things I, Students talk about, you know, how can how could they be so bad, Daquan Whistler, right? When they read my book, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think three, four generations from now, what will our grandchildren and great grandchildren be asking us? How could you drive an SUV? Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? Right? I don't, I don't know that you drive an SUV, but you know, uh, how was that possible to have internal combustion engines mm -hmm. for two generations after you knew the ice caps were melting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Same questions. Mm -hmm. So here's one yeah. uh, that I, from from talking to uh, early Americanists on campus here, Brett Rushforth, a former colleague of yours, is now a colleague of mine. Um, he's, he's, he's opened my eyes about one relationship in particular, which I think is a really interesting one, which is the question of the involvement of Native Americans um, with slavery and with the slave trade. Tell us a little bit about how the Creeks were involved in that, in that complex uh, of questions. Yeah, we think of slavery as uh, African thing, right? Um, in the, um, in the, well, in early America, um, for every African shipped to the shores in the late 17th and early 18th century, two natives were shipped away, or shipped to the Caribbean. Um, and the Creeks found themselves in the late 17th and early 18th centuries in a position where they really had to be either slavers or slaves. Um, that the, the British colonists around them were arming their neighbors, um, the British colonists were eager to seek to find uh, people who would provide them with slaves, uh, and the Creeks made the sensible decision to become slavers. Um, and so they themselves are involved in a um, in a slave sy a, a system of, of acquiring slaves stretched west of the Mississippi uh, and back to Charleston and on to the Caribbean, um, and. Many Creek people were themselves caught up in this system. This is one of the things you see in, in, uh, on the west coast of Africa as well at the same time. You know, people involved in, sl in producing slaves often themselves wind up being enslaved. Mm -hmm. And so the Creeks in the, in, you know, the 60, 70 years before the American Revolution were themselves intimately involved in a slave system. And then 
in the generation or two after, right up to the Civil War, really after the Revolution, many Creeks themselves, they were Southerners, they became slave owners. This is part of American history. You know, indigenous people are part of this history, mm -hmm. good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, um, the slave system, the system of acquiring slaves in the, in the American South, um, utterly devastated the region, right? It, it absolutely transformed the region in, in the 50, 60 years after 1650. Um, a bunch of Native nations that, you know, were big, a big deal at the time, simply went out of existence, they absorbed into other people, and the Creeks were one of those groups that absorbed these remnants, right? And a British trader in the 1750s called the Creeks a Confederacy of Remnants. Hmm. Um, and so the Creeks themselves emerge out of this process of, um, buying and selling people, of, um, of remaking their world, right? And to some extent, they didn't have a choice, right? Again, slaver or slave, those are really your options. Um, and these people that are buying, they're buying and selling, these aren't exclusively uh, Africans. No, these are, your, these are Indians. Indians. These are, these are, they're raiding, as many peoples did, they were raiding Indians, neighboring Indian nations to get slaves. They were themselves being raided and enslaved, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the British are providing a market for all of this, mm -hmm. right? In the same way that they're doing on the African coast, right? Uh, or, and, and not just the British, other European nations are doing the same thing. Uh, you know, labor is an incredibly valuable commodity in the 17th and 18th centuries, right? You have land, mm -hmm. you need labor. Um, and slaves die very, very quickly. Um, indigenous people were excellent laborers, just as Europeans would have been excellent laborers, Africans would have been excellent laborers. They, they used what they had. Mm -hmm. So you've begun to help us understand the way the Creeks engaged with the colonial economy in terms of the slave economy. Mm -hmm. But they were also involved in other aspects of the economy. You mentioned their entanglements, various entanglements mm -hmm. with capitalism. Tell us a little bit more about that story. Sure, of course. Um, one of the things the Creeks, so the, the Creeks are eager to get, were eager to get European goods. Um, the Creeks were eager to get European services. Um, the Creeks were eager to have European relationships with Europeans because Europeans are more powerful and important just as they were. Uh, one of the things that they found very quickly that they could sell to the Europeans were deerskins. Uh, you know, you don't have much in the way of beaver or buffalo in the southeast, but you have deer. And the British were, and the French were eager to have deerskins for a variety of manufacturing purposes. Uh, and so the Creeks went from being you know, good deer, deer hunters to avid deer hunters. They were producing, you know, the Confederacy of maybe 50,000 people was producing 500,000 deer skins a year by 1750, trading those to the British. But the Creeks were also providing food. They were providing uh, services in terms of, um, you know, Creek, Creek men serving as warriors, Creek men serving as guides, Creek women processing the skins, on and on and on. All of this in a sort of pseudo-wage economy, pseudo-market economy. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the 1750s and 60s, the Creeks have a fair amount of control over that process, and so they can determine how waged they want to be. That would gradually change. Um, but they eagerly entered the market, right, because there were things that they wanted in the market. Uh, and the British and French and Spanish were just as eager to trade with them because they wanted to tie the Creeks to their own imperial systems. Uh, and individual colonists from any of those empires wanted to make money. Um, it worked very, very well. I know so, you've, I mean, you've yeah. already made it clear, but I know one of the, the sort of large uh, arguments that you make is that this notion that um, Indian tribes, Indian societies, um, were kind of, they exist in a kind of um, 
temporal stasis. Mm -hmm. And then the, the Europeans came along and blew that all up. Right. But m my understanding f is that your perspective is that that is in fact mythological. That's not the case that before the Europeans came, these natives uh, lived in these you know, static cultural Say right. a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the, one of the hard things for us as historians, right, is to think about a history that happens before we have access to documents, mm -hmm. right? So before the arrival in, in in North America, before the arrival of the Europeans, right? How, how do we? Of course, these people change, right? We can see it archaeologically, right? Mm -hmm. We can see we at, at most crass level, we can see societies rise and fall. We the in, in the American South, they call the, there's these chieftains that emerge that have these enormous mounds that look sort of like small versions of what you see in Mesoamerica. And and there's chiefly cycling where chieftains rise and fall, rise and fall, and societies split and join together, right? All of this is historical, right? It's 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 history at a macro level. Mm -hmm. We just have a hard time writing about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we see when the Europeans arrive, right, are people, uh, native people, indigenous people, in motion, mm -hmm. just as the Europeans are, right? And, 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 it, and if, if we think about them in that way, right, we begin to have a sense of sort of the, the debates that are happening at the time, right, when the Europeans insert themselves into the debates. And the Europeans then become, in a sense, fodder for indigenous arguments, right? Like, the most important thing for many Creeks as late as 1750 wasn't the British or the French or the Spanish, it was the Cherokee, mm -hmm. right? So they're neighbors mm -hmm. to the north, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the indigenous people within the Creek society, right? And, 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 and European people come into that, they become part of those arguments, part of those conversations. Um, understanding that, the sort of long durée of indigenous history, is critical for understanding what the native people thought they were doing during this period. In the same way that if we want to understand the Europeans, you know, we really ought to, you know, in, in North America, we really ought, 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 we really ought to understand the Reformation, right, mm. and the emergence of European nations, and, and the changing, you know, on and on and on, right? All of that is part of American history. That doesn't mean we all have to do that history, mm. but if we want to understand what the Europeans thought they were doing here, we need to know more than they just discovered, right? That's That's, that's the beginning of the conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have just two minutes yeah. left. This will probably be my last question. So among the many things that you do is you are the editor of the William and Mary Quarterly. So what is the William and Mary Quarterly and why is it such an important uh, journal in the history of history, the study of history, yeah. but in particular the study of American history? So the William and Mary Quarterly is a, is a journal published by the Umhundra Institute. Uh, it's a history, it's a journal of early American history and culture. Uh, and it's been at the center of the field of early American history since the mid-1940s, right? It, it sort of called the field as a professional field into being. The, the, the Omohundra Institute and, and then the Quarterly is sort of one of the, the venues for the best scholarship. And so this has been going on for 75 years in June. Uh, we're going to have a big conference about that. Um, it has been the journal that has driven the conversation in the field. And I can say that because I wasn't involved in it, right? I'm not <laughs> bragging, um, but the, the for the last three generations, the best scholarship in the field has appeared in this journal, right? Um, and so in, in the seven, 1970s, for example, the, the journal was critical in sort of opening the field to social history. Uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was critical for opening the field to Atlantic history. Uh, under my watch, we're going even even more abroad, you know, into, into the global, into the continental, into the into indigenous societies. But this is what the, the journal has done. Uh, at the same time, it's tried not to lose track of the things that 
often bring us to early American history. Like mm -hmm. we just had a special issue on the, you know essentially the origins of the American Revolution. Um, we're going to have um, an, another special issue on slavery. All of these topics remain absolutely central to early American history, but we're also trying to broaden it as well. Uh, the journal is a enormously exciting place to work. Um, it's wonderful to see the, the challenging scholarship that my colleagues produce, uh, and I love being able to present four or five articles four times a year. Okay, well I have yeah. to stop you there. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. This is my pleasure, thank you. I've been speaking with Joshua Piker, professor of history at the College of William and Mary and editor of the William and Mary Quarterly. Piker gave a talk titled, So You Want to Publish a History Journal on November 27, 2017 as a guest of UO's Department of History. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.